Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show. We're here with our fantastic producer, Nathan Yoder, and then our illustrious stalwart co-host, Aaron Mercer. Aaron, how you doing? Great, good. Good to be on the podcast with you, Peter. And I'm, I'm excited about this one. Uh, oh, yeah. Talking about uh, translations. This is going to be fun. Well, as someone that's communications director, that makes sense. So <laughs> we're, uh, we're asking the question, why would I care about Bible translations? We're going to we're here with Nijay Gupta. He was on a previous episode about prayer. But I think the cool thing is um, for some of you that might think this is a nerded out thing, it's actually there's some pretty important issues that we're going to tackle in all of this. But also, Nijay's on the new uh, translation team for the New Living Translation. Um, and he also has a book that just came out. It's the 15 New Testament Words of Life. So we encourage all of you to go ahead and grab that book. Nijay, how you doing? Good to see you. Doing well, guys. Good to be with you. Always good to connect uh, from coast to coast. Love it. Well, since our last episode, why don't you update us where you're at, what you're doing, and uh, just a little bit about your life right now. Yeah, thanks. I'd love to. Um, I live in Portland, Oregon, a big soccer fan here. So uh, I spend a lot of time uh, when I'm not working and not with my family watching watching soccer and drinking coffee, enjoying kind of hipster land here in Portland. <laughs> I do have an electric bicycle, so I have some street cred here as well. Um, I teach at Northern Seminary, which is in Chicagoland, but I actually live here in Oregon. I teach a lot online, and then I fly to Chicago for intensives on occasion. My wife is a pastor, a youth pastor here in Oregon, and I have three kids. They keep me busy. They're all in sports and all kinds of other things, um, so that's kind of a busy but fun season. I have two follow-up questions there. Is that okay, Peter? Oh, the yeah. The first one, of course, might be the most important one of the whole episode. Do you have a, what's your favorite coffee there in Portland? Because I know it's, you know, it's a, it's a mecca of sorts for coffee. Right. You know, if you fly into the airport, we have a great airport, by the way, PDX Airport. Um, you'll see Stumptown. Stumptown is kind of a tourist favorite. It is, you know, my joke is the fancier the coffee, the smaller the sizes. And so <laughs> eventually you're just going to have a thimble of coffee or vapors, just vapors. But Stumptown <laughs> is kind of the tourist favorite. I would say personally, I like the Italian uh, coffee place called Cafe Umbria, which apparently is a, a Pacific Northwest thing. Um, and it, you know, my wife and I go there every, every few weeks and get a nice cup of coffee with a little chocolate on the side. I uh, got a little coaster, um, so it's 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 a it's a nice. It makes you think you're in the old country. Nice, I like it. I like it. I I've I've been to Stumptown. I had to make the pilgrimage to the original Stumptown, but now I know I've I've got to go to the the real place now. So Italian right. Umbria, you said it was what it was called. Cafe Umbria. Cafe Umbria. All right, all right. So here's the 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 more to the point question. How did you? Uh, you know, we're talking about. Um, uh, Bible translations, and I think this is, by the way, Peter, I think this is a great topic because I'm sure there's a lot of people who wonder where does this, where do we even get the versions that we have? How do they come about and whatnot? But I'm curious, you know, how, you know, one of the reasons why I know Peter uh, wanted to have you on this call, which is uh, this podcast, which is awesome, you're on a translation committee for the New Living Translation. Um, how did you even get there? Like, what, what was the <laughs> process to get on a committee like that? Yeah, I did not go through any kind of American Idol audition process, <laughs> but, um, you know, there is a committee that's been around for, you know, several decades, I'm guessing in the 80s, if I, if my memory serves me correctly, um, and that committee, there's about, I think, maybe 10, 10 to 12 people on that committee, uh, a few of them work for the publisher, which is Tyndale, Tyndale House Publishers in Illinois. Uh, and, and then a bunch of them obviously are scholars, people in Old and New Testament, mostly professors that teach at seminaries, things like that. Um, I, I don't 100 percent know the selection process, but my guess is I was contacted by Tremper Longman, who's longtime Old Testament professor at Westmont uh, College on the uh, in California. And, and he retired recently. And my sense is they had some retirements happen on the board in the era of New Testament. Um, they also recruited my northern colleague, Lynn Kohick. Uh, so both of us are on the committee now. 
my sense is they sat around and said, uh, who do we want to be overseeing our ongoing updates and revisions for New Testament? I think there are six scholars for the Old Testament because it's so long. Mm. And there are two scholars for the New Testament, Lynn uh, Kohik and myself. And they chose us at the same time. I think they were looking for people. So I'm guessing here, looking for people who are... Um, experienced or veteran biblical scholars who have a track record in exegetical work. I've published a number of commentaries, Dr. Kohik has as well, um, who are leaders in the field, um, you know, serve on boards, uh, but then who care deeply about the church, care deeply about what's going on in the pews, what's going on in the pastoral ministry world. And um, I, I hope that my body of scholarship has has kind of demonstrated that. Um, you know, I, I was actually curious if they'd make me do a Greek exam or something like that. <laughs> that was not part of it. Thank goodness. My Greek is pretty good, but I, I do get kind of stage fright. But, um, you know, I, I, I think they sort of trust you. I mean, that we had a number of rounds of interviews where they asked me conversations about my philosophy of translation um, my feelings towards the New Living Translation, um, because they really, when, when the New Living Translation came out originally, they were kind of breaking new ground and saying, we're going to do things differently than they were done before. Um, you had really uh, uh, loose paraphrases that existed before, and then you had the kind of NIV. But this kind of middle territory was underutilized, and so they wanted to make sure I was really on board with that. So I'd say after, you know, six weeks of, of, you know, spread out interviews with various stakeholders, um, I think they felt co comfortable and confident. Um, there's a time commitment. They want to know about that. Um, you know, just would I be a champion and advocate for the NLT, which I've always been a, a fan. So I, I would say a lot of it is just relationships. Mm. Um, you know, biblical studies is not a massive world we pretty much all know each other. So just finding people to work with that you trust that have a good track record that are on the same page, generally speaking, theologically, um, all, all those things came into play. Can you, can you dig in a little bit more on, you, you just mentioned about, um, your care for the church and translation and, and your philosophy of translation and the new living translation in particular, but can you back up a little further and just for people who are listening to this podcast, you know, what is, where does the NLT kind of fall on, there might be people who don't even know what the different translations are, which I wouldn't yeah. be surprised by. I mean, and there, there's so many of them, but also might, it's not like people talk about it all the time. Um, you know, can you explain like kind of what is the spectrum of translations that are out, the English translations that are out there right now and where NLT falls in yeah, that? So, so there are two, um, there are two, terms that scholars use for kind of different approaches. One is formal equivalent. That means a translator is trying to represent the Greek texts in English as formally as possible, meaning uh, we want to represent every word that's in the Greek text essentially word for word. You can't always do that. Not every word can be translated exactly. Um, but we're going to get as close as possible. And the goal behind that is to basically point the English reader to the Greek text. Mm. Um, you want to limit quote-unquote interpretation as much as possible. Now, why did I say quote-unquote? Because there's an old linguistic saying, it's actually Italian, traditore, traditore, which means translations are liars. <laughs> um, why do they say that? Because every translation is an act of interpretation. Uh, if I'm translating a movie or, uh, you know, a song or, or a poem, I'm going to make certain choices for the listener, for the reader. And those choices, I'm hiding those choices, right? Anytime you do translation, the translator has chosen one set of words as opposed to another. So formal equivalent means we're trying as hard as we can to retain every piece of information from the Greek text, even if that means it's going to be kind of dense or difficult to understand. And you see that with things like the NASB, which is as close to word for word as you can get. 
On the other end of the spectrum, you have what scholars call functional equivalent. So you have formal equivalent and you have functional. Functional means we don't feel tied down to giving the exact same word. We want to represent what makes the most sense conceptually in English while still being faithful to what the writer is communicating. So you get, you know, the NLT leans in that direction while not giving up on the biblical terminology and language. Um, most translations actually fall somewhere in the middle. The NIV kind of falls in the middle, leaning, I'd say, more towards formal. Um, you know, you have like the ESV, which is going to be even more formal. Um, you have the Common English Bible, which is going to be as pretty far towards functional as you can. I'd say the NLT leans functional. Um, the goal, I would say the NLT is faithfulness to the original text, but translating as much of the meaning uh, and the thought as you can from what the original writers were, were saying. Let me tell you why I think that's important, because in some of the older translations that we have that are more formal, you have what I call Christianese. Mm. where you have language that is only used in the Bible and not used in modern English. Things like, hallowed be thy name, right? And the problem with that is most of the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which means Greek of everyday discourse. Mm. You might say blue-collar Greek. Mm. Um, you might say the pub, the pub and, you know, and, and city sidewalk Greek. Um, once we start to turn that into Christianese and create words like fellowship that we don't actually use in modern English, you're actually getting away from the intentions of the biblical writers, was, which was to communicate in regular discourse, regular everyday speech. We can think of the ancient world, yet writers that wrote in high literary categories that were eggheads and sophists. And then you had graffiti, which is as low as you could get. And I think Koide was shooting a little bit above graffiti. Uh, you know, the New Testament Greek is trying to shoot a little bit above graffiti. Now, there are more sophisticated writers in the New Testament, someone like Luke, author of Hebrews. But um, what the NLT is doing, and we could talk about this later. I don't think there's one perfect translation. I don't encourage people to only read one translation. But I think the NLT does a really good job of recognizing what's most important when we're reading the Bible is understanding. Mm-hmm. And obviously we want to be faithful, but understanding is crucial. It's huge. It's, it's one of the most important things. And I think the NLT does a really good job of that. You know, so Nijay actually used to live in Rochester and he, you and I had this conversation. Um, so like one of, so if people Google Bible translations, like one of the biggest areas of conflict, shall we say, is, you know, the Bible was written in a patriarchal society. So like where this gets super practical is there's passages that say brothers, they use he, but they don't necessarily say she and or sisters or some of them translate. So I guess help our listeners kind of understand you're taking a certain text in Koine Greek at a certain time and place, and you're trying to maintain not only the spirit, but you know, a proper translation. So modern day readers why don't you walk people through maybe even that conversation about gender and even how you're trying to engage that in the 21st century for the NLT? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It's a hard question, but it's an important one. Let me talk about it in two different categories. One is patriarchy, and I'll, I'll try to address that later. The one I want to talk right about right now is grammatical gender. Mm. So this is tough for English speakers, uh, only English speakers to understand. Because when we use English, like if I say house or tree, uh, in English, that's not, the terms are not genderized grammatically. Mm. Whereas in Greek, or for example, German, uh, all terms, essentially, all nouns have grammatical grammar. Now, 99.9% .9 of the time, grammatical gender has absolutely nothing to do with being manly or womanly. So, for example, um, 
you know, the Greek word sarx, which means flesh. There's nothing especially feminine about the word sarx, even though it's grammatically feminine. Or the word word, logos, there's nothing especially masculine about it, even though it's grammatically masculine. Mm. So um, it's important to understand that languages just have gender as a grammatical component and it doesn't always mean anything. Now, let's say I'm talking about pronouns like he or she. I would use grammatically correct pronouns in the Greek world to refer to a he or a she. But if you're just saying something really general like they, they went to the store, Greek will default to masculine. It doesn't default to masculine because it's sexist. It defaults <laughs> to masculine because that's the default. Um, and most people in their minds in the Greek world aren't going to be thinking this is a group of men or this is a male environment. That's important to know because once we get into the pronouns discussions, Paul uses this pronoun, you know, the Gospels use this pronoun. There's a kind of tendency to default to masculine just because you have to choose one and that was what the defaulted to. We see this today, even in English, when we say, hey, guys, mm. um, you know, it does offend people sometimes. But generally speaking, people understand when you say to a room, you know, quiet down, guys, you know, you're not trying to be sexist. You're not just trying to talk to the men. I just looked again at the issue of brothers and sisters and the Greek word is adelphoi. It's it's one word. And the dictionary definition is brothers. But our best understanding is take a book like Romans, where the word brothers is used all the time. Because so many women are talked about as part of the church in Romans 16, it only makes sense that Paul is using the terminology brothers in a, a, an inclusive way. And so then the question is, how do we translate that? You could translate as brothers and just tell people this means brothers and sisters. You could translate siblings. That would be kind of awkward just because we don't use that today. You know, my siblings, listen to me. Like we just don't. It sounds very <laughs> awkward. You could say brothers and sisters, which many translations do. So you have some options there. The issue is, what does the reader today understand? Are they picking up on that? Um, let's stop there. If you have follow ups, then we'll talk about patriarchy. No, keep going. <laughs> okay. So then you have the issue of patriarchy. Uh, I actually have a book coming out in February, March called Tell Her Story, which is about the women leaders of the early church, according to the New Testament. And I talk a lot about patriarchy in there um, because it's just a fact and phenomenon uh, of the ancient world. There are two things I want to say about patriarchy in the first century that I hope will help people better understand the New Testament. One is it was just a fact of life. And it was not something that the early Christian writers created. It was a system that they were a part of. So, for example, today for writing uh, books today, we're going to we're a part of a culture of capitalism. Right. Oh, you know, let, let, let's let's take this example. Um, it, it wasn't that long ago that I would go to uh, international airport somewhere. I think maybe it's Dallas, Fort Worth, and I'd have to pay for Wi-Fi. I'd have to pay for Wi-Fi. It seems criminal now, but it was pretty normal back then. And people didn't question some of that. Or you'd have to watch a bunch of ads. Now, pretty much any airport you go to, it's free, right? But we can criticize that now from our vantage point. The people in that time, which was maybe only 10 years ago, just took it for granted. So I think in so much of the New Testament, patriarchy is there and it's taken for granted. The question is whether it's Christianized or baptized. Mm. Uh, that's actually an important question. We could talk about that. And I don't think it was. Um, I think the early Christians tended to utilize the systems that are already in existence, trying to redeem them from the inside out. So let's just take the example of slavery. Slavery is horrible. I've been just reading this book. I'm going to show it to you because I can see you. It's called The Roman Guide to Slave Management. Oh, wow a treatise by Marcus Sidonius Faux. It's actually fiction, but it's written as if there's this nobleman trying to teach people how to keep their slaves in line. And it's it's historical fiction. It's very accurate and it's traumatizing. I'm gonna have my students read it. And I'm actually gonna tell them on the syllabus, this may be triggering because it's violent and it's um, it involves sexual abuse and all kinds of stuff. 
slavery was a fact of life in the first century. That doesn't make it good. And actually, I'm disappointed sometimes when I read passages in the New Testament that seem to turn a blind eye to slavery. Um, so, for example, the household codes where it says slaves obey your masters and everything. And I don't think Paul meant go along with abuse. But he also didn't say not to uh, explicitly. And so I think some of those things are challenging. On the other hand, he does say things like there's no longer slave or free. And he doesn't mean get rid of the system. I don't think he could conceive of that. But I think he does mean I, we Christians see human value from a different standpoint. That's going to need to change things. I think the same is true for patriarchy. I think patriarchy is a fact in the New Testament. It is taken for granted. Um, the question is whether there are the seeds of transformation there for the future. And I do think there are with the many women that work what I call shoulder to shoulder with the apostles, women like Phoebe, women like Priscilla, women like Junia, women like Yodi and Syntyche and um, Nympha and Colossians, Mary Magdalene. There's so many that we could talk about. But, um, I, you know, if we're offended when we read the New Testament and see patriarchy, I think it's a normal re response. Um, but I don't know if you guys are following the conversation about Tolkien and the Rings of Power. And there's a lot of question about why didn't Tolkien have more diversity in his book? I don't want to let Tolkien off the hook, but it was a different era of history. And I, I don't want to get into controversy. I think it's okay to diversify the cast uh, for today. Uh, that raises questions then about, you know, how do we look at the past? How can we find value in something from a long time ago while still recognizing it comes from a particular time and place? Mm. That's really interesting. I'm so. I guess to follow up on that, um, I'd be interested in, in hearing more about how that. You know, what are some specific instances where that might affect how you translate certain passages? But before you go there, are there are there other? So you know, Peter brought up probably one that might jump into some people's minds um, quickly, um, or maybe I mean, if they stop and think about it, but. Are there other complexities out there that maybe aren't, aren't jumping to our minds that you have to deal with when you're, when you're in translation mode that you have to deal with day in and day out? Um, what are some things that we, we're not thinking about that you have to think about? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, one thing that, you know, scholars of Greek really wrestle with is the nature of tense in mm. Greek. Mm. Tense is, uh, in English, it's pretty straightforward. We have past, present, and future. And we have different ways of expressing that. I will do this. I will be doing this. We have different ways of expressing that. But we think about tense and past, present, and future. There are really lively debates in Greeks, uh, you know, in modern scholarship on ancient Greek about how, how tense works. So we're just talking about a different language, a different way that it works. So there's a thing called verbal aspect which we really don't have built into our words the same way that Greek does. And it's basically the perspective of the author or the perspective the author's trying to take on an action. I don't want to get into the details, but this causes a lot of challenges with how do we translate things? How do we translate things to make the most sense? Um, I'll give you a couple of examples of things where I would have a really hard time translating them sensibly in English, unrelated to tense, but, but things I think about. Take Galatians, I think, chapter 3. Paul's talking about the law, and he says... The law played a role of, and the Greek word is paedagogus. A paedagogus was a slave that functioned as a tutor, guardian, and disciplinarian in the first century. We don't have anything like this today. So then the question is, how do you translate that? Some translations are uh, teacher, tutor, um, disciplinarian. Uh, can you come up with one word? No. I mean, you know, I, I think one I came up with, someone came up with governess, but that's only going to make some sense to some people. Tutor is sort of right, but kind of not. So one thing is, what do you do with things that just don't have a natural equivalent in modern English? That keeps me up at night. Mm. I think about that. What would I want to do? Um, you have things where, is it worth getting into the deeper nuances of the word? So for example, Paul says, Philippians chapter one, uh, verse 27, uh, live your lives worthy of the gospel, um, gospel of Christ. 
live your lives. The Greek word there is politio, where we get the word politics from. There's a natural political connotation to it. Live your life uh, in community, in the city. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to know exactly how to translate it. Almost no translations do anything with it. I think the NLT does offer some nuance to that. But most translations, NIV, others, don't do anything with it. I think because they're like, anything we're going to say might create more confusion. But Paul is actually deviating from his norm of just using the language of living as walking uh, or living as, as living. He's using a, another term, a more rare term for him. Stuff like that where how deep do we go? How much does the reader need to know? Are we going to create more problems than solutions? Hmm. Um, another challenge is do we choose consistency or nuance so take the greek word pistis which means faith sometimes it means faith as in belief sometimes it means faith as in commitment and sometimes it means faith closer to action like obedience uh, so it runs across the spectrum so do you translate it differently based on how it's used in a sentence uh or do you translate it consistently, trying to show the reader that this is the same Greek word as we saw two verses ago or five verses ago, which would be obvious to a Greek reader, but not to an English reader because they're seeing different ways it's translated. I mean, these are all kind of head scratchers. Um, these are all, you know, trying to find the right English equivalent is always tricky because some people use English differently. Let me give an example. The Greek word kara, which means joy. I don't like using that as a translation because we just don't use that that much in modern English as our default word for happiness. We don't say, you know, hey, Peter, I have a joy to share with you or come <laughs> rejoice with me. You know, we don't do that unless we're trying to speak, you know, biblical you know, language. So when I was translating this for a commentary, I was deciding between three options. And I, one was cheers because, you know, kind of clink the glass, but that could have some connotations that people don't like. The second is party, party with me. But partying can have kind of a, you know, you know, get, you know, get wasted kind of vibe to it, which <laughs> I didn't want. So I chose celebrate, which seems to be the closest, in my opinion, to what we'd say if you got a raise at work or if you won the lottery, you would say celebrate, right? You wouldn't say, you know, let us rejoice. It's those kinds of things where, you know, a committee is going to sit around and say, we're going to talk through it. We're going to make our case and then we're going to vote. Um, maybe the vote is formal. Maybe it's informal. But um, that's kind of how the process works. So I kind of want to come back because so I'm going to make a phrase that we sometimes say Christians will say about the Bible. I'll let you kind of process and agree or disagree. So the Bible was written um, for us, not to us. So it was written in a certain time. And, you know, you, you made mention that there's some things that you read in the Bible that you get frustrated either by what Paul says or the writer says and what they don't say. Um, but obviously you still have a trust in the Bible. You devoted your life to it. You know, I'm kind of wondering, because help our listeners kind of understand not just what you're doing on the translating level, but how did in ancient times, and I'll paraphrase this, you know, before any council, how did the Bible come to be? Because I, I think some of these problems are, it was communicated in a certain way at a certain time. And we're trying to kind of bring that in there because some of these complexities, we don't have every re recorded conversation, um, but we also have what's, so help listeners kind of walk through how kind of the Bible came to be in ancient times. It's a, great, it's a great question, and I'm, I'm afraid the answer isn't going to make everybody happy because I think what we want to know is, you know, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Father God, and the apostles sat in a room together, wrote out a list, and, you know, signed it in blood. That didn't happen. Um, what ended up happening is, you know, for the Old Testament, that's its own story, but you have kind of Israel collecting kind of texts that... Um, are connected to key figures like Moses or Joshua or certain prophets um, or uh, you know, King David or King Solomon. Um, and then you have texts that 
had kind of staying power. Uh, texts like Job, uh, you know, that 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 seemed to have provided, you know, meaningfulness for the life of Israel. Then once you get to Jesus, obviously, you know, these authoritative gospels are uh, linked to Jesus. They're linked to apostles uh, through their tradition. Uh, you have apostles like Paul, you know, Peter and, and uh, John and so forth. The quote-unquote canonization didn't happen in the first century, didn't really happen in the second century, and we're not even sure it happened in the third century. But what happened in the, probably in the fourth century is um, there was that desire to, hey, let's lock this thing down, let's make sure we're on the same page, because you did have a lot of texts that were written that started to introduce bad teaching, uh, um, things that deviated from kind of the heart of the charisma, the gospel message. And so there was more pressure. Okay, we're a pretty big movement now. We need to make sure that we, what we have, we all consider sacred. So it kind of happened more by consensus than it did by like a vote or some sort of heavenly council. It wasn't, my understanding, it wasn't really like that. It was that these books were recognized as sacred rather than uh, kind of blocked off uh, by by a particular. It didn't happen by Constantine. It didn't happen by one bishop. Um, what I ended up, I used to teach undergraduate when I used to tell my students, because this could be very uncomfortable because they have this nice leather bound Bible. And we have some questions about exactly how all these books got in there. What about the Catholic Bible? What about the Greek Orthodox Bible? What about the Jewish Bible? There are all great questions that we can ask. I think Christians at the end of the day have to recognize two things. One, we have to trust the church. The church was involved in this process. It, it didn't just drop down uh, into an Amazon warehouse from heaven. The Bible came through the church's discernment of what should be considered Holy Scripture. Second is we have to trust the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit guided in some sense this process behind the scenes. No, the Spirit didn't appear to a particular bishop and say, hey, this is Scripture. But we have to believe that the Spirit was behind what we have as Scripture. I will say scholars talk about a few tests that probably guided their decision on what to treat as Scripture. One is apostolicity, which means is it connected to an authoritative figure mm. like an apostle? Uh, antiquity, does it date back to quote unquote biblical times? So Peter, sorry, you cannot write a new book of Scripture. Uh, the canon is closed. Uh, antiquity is, uh, I think, a fundamental factor of, of how God was working in a particular era. And uh, utility. Utility uh, means, uh, was this found to be of use for Christian faith, teaching, and life? So, for example, you kind of mentioned a lot more happened in biblical times than we have recorded. What if we dug up you know, a grocery receipt at Kroger? Uh, or or, or uh, what's the one in Rochester Wegmans? Yeah, Wegmans. Yeah. What if we had, what if you found a grocery receipt from the apostle? It ha it passes the test of apostolicity and antiquity, but it doesn't really pass the test of utility because all he bought was a block of cheese. Um, <laughs> and then the fourth would be orthodoxy. Does it does it meet the test of following kind of what we think of as the rule of faith, which links back to something like the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, and so forth. Um, we did, we've never found those four tests on any document. It's just a matter of kind of looking at the conversations that were happening in the third and fourth century and saying, these issues seem to be important for what they decided goes in and what they decided must stay out. Hmm. No, that's really interesting. I, I, I love the question Peter asked there. It's, you know, there's a, I think what we were just getting at there is kind of a, how do you how do you trust the the Bible and what's what's in there and and the process? Um, what are the authorities that you're you're relying on in, in the midst of that? Um, so to get back to a translation, then so that's so you know you're talking about the original text. Um, now we're talking about uh, how do we translate that into to English? And at the beginning of this conversation, you you talked about how people should use different translations. They should be looking in different translations to really dig into the word and you know what i'm i'm curious you know what should people be looking for in a translation 
for a certain context that they want to use it for? Like what, what should they be looking for that makes it trustworthy to them for um, devotional reading or for um, just using, you know, as, as your text in, in going to church or in a small group if you want to dig deeper into something? What, what are some of the uh, guidelines they should be having for that? Yeah, I mean, the general rule of thumb is if you're going to do more in-depth um, verse-by-verse kind of study for deeper Bible study or in, in college or seminary, um, you know, it's highly encouraged that you use a more formal equivalent translation, which would be something like, um, I really like the NRSV. Uh, that's kind of what's used in my circles. I'll explain in a moment how you know if a translation is kind of respectable. But I, I, I like the NRSV. I like the NET, the N-E-T uh, translation as well for that kind of specific work. The NASB I struggle with. I, I don't love it. We could talk later about it if you want. Um, I don't like the ESV, which for reasons that we could talk about later if you want as well. Uh, if you're going to do more devotional or uh, um, maybe more kind of artistic or meditative, I highly encourage a more functional equivalent like the Common English Bible, the New Living Translation, things like that. The message I really like, even though it's not a Bible translation, it's a paraphrase. I really like the message. If you, I think from the pulpit, a, a good kind of middle ground is really good. Something like the NIV uh, is something I've always uh, appreciated uh, from the pulpit as as something familiar to people, um, but but sticks pretty pretty close to kind of word for word just because um, it, it has that more ring of you know let's let's uh, let's dig into uh, into into the, the specific wording of this. Going back to the question of how you choose, um, there are a lot of things that go by the name Bible translation that are, how do I say this delicately? Something Here, to investigate me, more. Well, well, let me, let me think, let me try to throw out what you're saying. And this is why we want to kind of have you on is like the people that are chosen to help translate um you know i think what you're trying to say is if there's a questionable agenda or if they're not connecting with culture to try to yes. realize like that's kind of what your frustration is and that's that's even why this conversation is important right now because a translation will only go so far you know I mean, I buy your commentaries, whether it's Galatians or Thessalonians or things like that, because, you know, I want to have, you know, Nijay's perspective along with four to five other, four to five other commentators, maybe even sure. someone historical. So I think that that's kind of what you're pointing to. Is that kind of the issue that you're dealing with? Yeah, you want to know that the people that are behind the translation come from a committee of ideally diverse people, not always theologically diverse because, you know, you're all going to try to get on the same page about translation, but different institutions, um, you know, that you have credentials, like you have a PhD. Why is that important? Because you've studied linguistics, you've studied some Greek, Hebrew, you know, in seminary, I took Greek, Hebrew, Akkadian, Aramaic, um, ecclesiastical Latin, you know, I, you've been through kind of a gamut of um, language study to be able to do this kind of work really well. There, you know, I, I was I was asked to talk about the Passion Translation. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but um, it's become really popular, especially in Pentecostal circles. But there's a, a, a one person who has created this translation called the Passion Translation. It's become really popular. Uh, amongst a particular uh, uh, group of, of churches. And I was, I was brought on to this uh, YouTube channel to try to uh, engage with my professional opinion. And um, one thing that came out of that is I look at translations in two categories in terms of their um, usage. One is I call official use translation. Official use translation are things like the NIV, where for people who don't know Greek and Hebrew, essentially this is the Bible. I mean, what you're reading, this is a big responsibility. This is the Bible. 
Like when you go to the coffee shop and someone says, what are you doing? You say, I'm reading the Bible. You ring your NIV. That's the Bible to you, right? Um, so I consider that official use. And there should be checks and balances for translations that fall into that category. Then uh, there is another category. I don't remember what it's called, but let's say, um, you know, kind of opinion translations. These tend to come from one person or a small group that doesn't really open themselves up to being criticized by the guild. And they want to offer the translation as a supplement to Bible reading, supplemental translations, I, I guess is what I call them, as a supplement to Bible translation, but they don't say this is the Bible. Mm. So, for example, N.T. Wright's Kingdom Translation. Um, I think that Tom Wright would say, don't read this as the Bible. Read this as a helpful supplement. At least I'd hope that that's what he would say. And I anticipate that's what he'd say. But he wouldn't say, throw out your NIV and just read this. The Passion Translation, the, the, uh, the writer, Brian Simmons, actually says this is the best translation ever. This supersedes anything that's come before it, including NIV and so forth. That, I think, is a dangerous claim. So as you're looking at a translation, if someone says there's this brand new translation, no one's ever heard of it, but it's the best, that's kind of fishy to me. Mm. It hopefully went through a process of vetting because if people are going to treat this as the Bible, you want to make sure that you have as broad uh, appreciation, consensus, and vetting as you can. Hmm. So one place, I, so I kind of want to talk more about the New Living Translation you know, so some of our listeners will have known about the Living Bible. I think it's important for you to kind of share if there's roots there, it's disconnected. But the second question to that, just to help our listeners, is so this is an updated translation. So, you know, some of your most lazier students, this wouldn't necessarily be me, would, you know, are you reading the older translation and then kind of with the Greek comparing it? Or are you kind of drawing from a fresh, hey, I'm just going to read the Greek as is. So the first question is, you know, there's the new living, but then there's living by what's the difference. But then the second is, how do you translate with an update as opposed to, you know, from scratch or are you going from scratch? Yeah, good question. Um, so what, I, I recently went to the Tyndale House Publishers um, offices in, in Carroll Stream. Uh, and I got the backstory. I was able to sit down with some people there and learn about the history of it, which I, I didn't know much about until last, you know, six months. Uh, yes, the New Living Translation has a precursor in the Living Bible, but no, it's not based on it in the sense that it's an update of it. I think what the original committee of New, New Living Translation did, which I think was in the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm is they adopted the basic approach of the living bible which is what i said one of kind of in between formal and functional as formal as you can to respect the biblical text but with the desire to translate into modern understandable colloquial english um, so a real desire that this doesn't sound like Christianese, this doesn't sound like old King James. So I would say it, it, it bears tribute to the philosophy of the living Bible without being dependent on it. Mm. So my understanding is that the translation committee of the nineties, um, actually produced a fresh translation mm. of the Bible, you might say from scratch inspired by the living bible be my understanding rather than dependent on it certainly not a revision of the living bible uh, as far as i understand uh what's our plan going forward i um i cannot say that we have an actual revision plan because we haven't met as a committee to talk about what the plans are the the version of uh i think it's a 2.0 version of the new living translation that we have now is kind of getting old, um, not old enough to be useless, uh, but but now is the time as board members have been retiring, some of them passed away, to think, okay, do we want to um, make some changes? And if and, and the whole idea behind this is, um, and I'll tell you a story in a minute that I think you'll find interesting. The desire behind updating a translation is not because we were wrong, 
but because English itself changes over time with culture. Mm. Um, so my kids wonder, for example, why we sing Dom We Now Are Gay or Apparel at Christmas time, <laughs> because they don't know the old meaning of the word gay, right? As, as festive, festive apparel, right? Just as English changes. Uh, so we want to make sure that our, our translations um, are coherent with, with the way culture understands the terms we're using. Let me give an example. About six, seven years ago, the English, uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version, um, announced they were coming out with a revision to their trans English translation. And actually many, not many, but some churches that use the ESV got upset saying, if this is the word of God, it should never change. Mm. And this applied pressure on the translation committee and the translation committee announced We'll make this revision and then we'll never revise the ESV ever again. And within like a couple of weeks, there was an outcry from the linguistic community saying this makes zero sense in terms of how language works. Language changes the way we use colloquialisms and, and even just regular words changes over time. And so they actually did a reverse course a, a few weeks later and said, no, we are sorry. We'll make short, small changes in keeping with biblical scholarship and the changing of English language. And we're like, thank you. That's that's what you're expected to do. But what happened there was people not understanding, especially the people in these churches that were applying pressure. Yes, the word of God is the same. But we as recipients of that are in a dynamic atmosphere where our language and our communication is changing. Also, there are things from the Bible that we, you know, don't always understand perfectly, or we find new information to help us understand better. It's a very small portion, less than 1%, but it's part of an honest, ongoing, better understanding of scripture that we're trying to do through studying the Dead Sea Scrolls or archeology, span or what we call textual criticism, where we look at different manuscripts in the ancient world and try to get the best sense of what the original said. Can you, can you, uh, I wanted to jump back on you, you, what you just said was really helpful. Um, and a lot of the considerations that you have as you're, as you're translating, what is the difference between translating and paraphrasing? You mentioned the message is a, is useful, um, but it's a paraphrase. So what, what makes a useful paraphrase versus a useful translation? That's a good question. And I would say it is kind of gray. Um, how exactly that works. I would say um, I would say an actual translation is trying to embody the person and as close to what they said in the way they said it, the author, as much as possible. Um, a paraphrase is mo most concerned with getting the basic meaning of what they said as clear as possible. So for example, a paraphrase, I'm thinking about Eugene Peterson, might not use the same metaphor that the biblical writer used because the biblical writer is using a metaphor that might be unclear to us today. Hmm. So there's certain liberties there with, so for example, I remember watching the movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon if you remember this movie from back in the day. And I don't know why, but I chose to put on both the subtitles and the audio dubbing. And what was funny about that is they were completely different translations. One was a very word for word and one was a very free, um, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, let's take, for example, um, if you said, what's up? Okay, this is a good example. So if I say, what's up? Right? And and you're with someone that doesn't speak English and, and their friend is trying to translate for them. And, and they say, let's say in Spanish, you know, what are they saying? Right? Are you going to say, what's up? They're saying, what's up? Are you going to say, how are you doing? Or what's going on? Right? What's up is the meaning of what I was saying. But what's going on is what I'm actually trying to say that's going to make the most sense to that person. So that gets, that's gets more to a paraphrase. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, so 
Um, this conversation has gone really fast. And for those of you that, that are listening, they probably never thought this translation conversation could be so dynamic. That's why we invited you. <laughs> I know. Um, I want to keep on talking about it. It's, it, so, it's great. <laughs> so so I, I can kind of see our listeners in in two places of a continuum. Number one, I can see some listeners being like, thank you for being honest about the Bible. Like, just thank you for coming out. And they're actually more inspired because they know a little bit of the background. And I can see other listeners that are just apprehensive, like, I didn't know about this. And and I, I want to get personal for you because you've devoted your life and your career to this passion of studying the Bible. And like, you've been very raw and honest. What is it about it that has still given you fresh life? And also, you know, do you go through seasons where you have really huge doubts or, you know, are you in a season now where you're like, this is coming alive in different ways and I can accept it for what it is, but it's my job to help people experience Like, how is Jesus keeping this passion so real and fresh in your life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, first I'd like to mention that I, I actually have my own podcast, Peter. Um, it's called In Faith and Doubt with Dr. A.J. Swoboda and myself. We kind of co co um, host, co chat on the podcast. And it's actually all about all of our fears and doubts and faith and ups and downs. And we're both really honest. We both talk about going to a spiritual director and, and kind of therapy. Uh, we both talk about the things that keep us up at night. AJ will just ask me on the podcast, what keeps you up at night? What questions can you not answer? And so I, I point you guys, it's very similar to your podcast in the sense of we want to be really honest and not hide the weird and shadowy, strange things of our of our religion and faith. But to answer your question, you know, how, how, do, how do I stick with it in spite of some of the things I can't answer, some of the things that might be uncomfortable? Um, you know, when, when I see people exit the Christian faith, which, you know, people are talking about more and more as deconstruction or demolition, I wonder, are they finding something better out there <laughs> outside? If they are, in a sense, I'm like, great. Like, but my sense is people don't, you know, I've talked, I live in Portland, Oregon, where there are a lot of people don't go to church. And you have a lot of these people my age in their 40s who have kids and their kids have never been churched. But these parents, they grew up in maybe conservative households and they kind of bucked from the church and now they want to live differently. And yet there is this curiosity and hunger they have for spirituality, this hunger for depth in their life and a meaning greater than just kind of the daily grind. And so I'm actually, we, my wife and I actually see a lot of people interested in why we are religious, uh, even if they don't particularly like Christianity. Um, so I think there is this, you know, proverbial emptiness inside of us looking, looking to be filled. Um, I think of the story of the disciples after Jesus gives this very hard teaching where he talks about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. And, you know, John says many people turned away and left him because, you know, he seemed crazy, basically. And Jesus, probably a little bit hurt by this, turns to his 12 disciples and says, are you going to are you going to leave also? And what does Peter say? He says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. That sums up my personal story a lot. It's not that everything's perfect, but, um, you know, I, I, you know, when I fill out a tax form, I have dependents, right? I'm a dependent on Jesus. You know, I'm one of his dependents. And so I have good days of faith and bad days of faith. But at the end of the day, I know that my life is better because I have this death grip on Jesus's sleeve. Um, and, you know, just the resources to get through life. I mean, Peter, you know, you and I lived life together at a time where both of us were going through hard times. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember texting with you about it and drawing from the Christian tradition to help us comfort one another. I had a friend who recently lost his job and I sent him the same uh, hymn lyrics that I sent you, Be Still My Soul. Uh, all, all now mysterious shall be bright at last. Um, the winds and waves still know the voice of him who ruled them while he dwelt below. Um, 
I can't, I can't imagine walking away from something that has carried me through so much hell, <laughs> honestly. Um, I've been through hell and back a couple of times with, with some family health issues. And, um, you know, one thing AJ and I talk about on our podcast is no matter what you, what philosophy or religion you have, your life will have terrible times and your life will have mysteries. Those are just givens, no matter what Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, atheism, it's all going to have hard times. And it's all going to have things you can't explain and maybe things you'll never understand. Mm. And what keeps me going is, um, you know, when I read the Gospels, when I read Scripture, when I read the Psalms, these are words of life for me. These are uh, the words of eternal life, as Peter says. And, um, you know, there's no such thing as permanent faith. All there is is moment to moment faith. Anyone claims they have permanent faith, they don't need Jesus. The minute they have that, they don't need Jesus. And so all we can hope for is to say to God, help me get to the next step. Help me help me crawl out of bed today. Drag <laughs> me out of bed today. And, I, you know, thanks be to God that he's gotten me through each and every day. Wow. Um there was a little bit of everything in this episode. So this is great. And I just, uh, I appreciate that. We, um, we always close with, uh, one question, which is what does Jesus have to say about this topic? So like a great professor and scholar that you are, Aaron and I are going to answer, and then you get to clean up whatever mess we leave. Does that sound good? Sure. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, do you want to go first or do you go want me, it. you want me to go first? Um, so what does Jesus have to say about Bible translations? You know, just this morning I was in a staff meeting for our discipleship team and we were talking about the verse in Philippians, um, about, you know, handle your salvation in fear and trembling. And it was interesting cause we actually went to three different versions about that. And the fear of the Lord is a very complex term. And, you know, I think the way of Jesus, how he lived and even, taking a verse like that, that we don't, what is, you know, does God want us to be afraid? There's another verse that says perfect love casts out all fear. And I'm sure Nije can actually talk about the complexities of that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think what Jesus has called us to is to live, live life in community. And even with a complicated verse like that, the reason why translations are important is the people like Nije who are doing it are important, but it's even more important to read that that verse in small groups, in community, looking at different commentaries, because as humans, we are limited by our experience. Yes, the word of God doesn't change, but we change a lot. And that's the whole point of Christianity is to become more like Jesus. And as, as we hear this, I, I look at Jesus devoted his life to 12 disciples, and there's a crowd of people that followed him. You know, if you're reading the Bible by yourself, you're missing out on the power of the book. Yes, read it by yourself, but it's something to be done in community. And, you know, Nijay mentioned Lynn. I'm sure I'm sure Lynn and Nijay get, you know, they agree on 100%. Um, I'm just kidding. But, you know, that's the whole point of the Bible is that <laughs> he's, shake, he's shaking his head on the other She's side. She's my boss, but... Peter. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, I didn't know that. Uh, so, but I, I say all that because we're supposed to engage in this and there's a, a part of Bible translation and studying the Bible that's done in community because we need eyes outside of ourselves. And I think Nijay, you brought that up really well. Go ahead. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. No, I, I appreciate that. And I, I really think that, um, this is Jesus obviously would care about how we read his word. And I, I, I love the idea of the importance of reading that in community. Um, and, um, I loved how we talked during this, even this session about, you know, reading different translations to get, you know, if you're, it depends, it depends on what you're doing. If you're trying to get, if you're trying to go word for, you know, word for word um, study, or if you're trying to be in a community like a small group where people, you know, you're trying to get, get it so that people can understand what you're reading. I mean, all of that I think is important uh, to consider. I just love that we're, we're talking about this because Jesus uses these scriptures that uh, are before us to touch our hearts. Um, and he uses that, his spirit works through that, works through those those words. Um, 
you know, whether it's something well-known like John 3.16 or Psalm 23 or something less well-known, whatever the case may be, to, to get us to have a new realization or a new way of looking at us, even a individual situation day by day that you're going through. Like there's just, there's an importance there. So, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's a really important topic. Um, and I also want to say thank you, Nije, for being, taking that responsibility on yourself for, um, trying to make sure we have the, the best NLT we can, knowing how it's going to be impacting people and how, how Christ is going to work through that. Um, I think that that's, that's a, uh, it's really cool to think about and it's uh, humbling, I think probably too. So thank you so much for that. And, um, yeah, this is a great topic. And one, and I think I said before, Peter, it's one that I like, I want to keep talking about it, but <laughs> we only have so much time. So go ahead. Why don't you finish this off here? <laughs> a three hour podcast only, only meets the needs of a very specific group of people. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would just affirm what you're saying. You know, I think sometimes for people, you know, like Peter's talking about the second group, it can be scary to know the subjectivity sometimes of Bible translations. In fact, there are humans behind this, you know, there are humans with flaws and issues behind this. From one perspective, that can be unsettling. From another perspective, it's kind of exciting. Like we're a part of God continuing to do amazing things today. Like we, we don't just have to look back at, you know, 2000 years ago and said, God moved then. We can say God moves now in the fact that we can continue to mull over and dialogue these things. Um, you know, I, I teach about 100 seminary students every year. And uh, in my grading rubric, I don't actually have an, a line for correctness. I don't really grade them on correctness. Not because I don't care about correctness. I do. But if you're a 30-year-old mature Christian in seminary, the chances are you can find the right answers. What I really grade them on is depth. And depth often has to do with wrestling. If a student just gives me cookie-cutter answers that follow word for word from their tradition they haven't really shown me the wrestling with it that's a bad sign to me like you're in seminary to to enrich and and give depth to your faith not to just churn out you know answers for a you know faq section of your website um and and that's kind of what i want to see i think jesus would probably do that if he was talking about bible translation and bible study when, when you're asking what would jesus say he doesn't he doesn't talk about bible translation but i think what he would say which he says a lot is do you have ears then listen up right jesus mm. says that a lot whoever has ears let him hear why does he say that everybody has ears and everybody does hear but there's hearing and there's really hearing right mm. i have kids so i know the difference they're always hearing me, but only rare they are they listening. <laughs> hmm. And there's something for us to learn uh, about Bible translation. I, I, I've talked to several people who have said to me, they're surprised that I support functional equivalent translations like the NLT because there's this impression that you're only a serious Christian if you like formal translations the best. Mm-hmm. Because it seems like it's hardcore, get into the Greek text, word for word, literal. Um, I don't think Jesus actually thought that. I think he says, definitely be faithful to the scriptures. Let no jot or tittle, right? Uh, you know, dot your t- I's, cross your T's. Jesus was all about that. What he meant by that is, let no one take away from scripture. Let no one choose for themselves what should be in and out. But ultimately what Jesus wants is a close relationship with us of mutuality, fidelity, love, forgiveness, peace, right? And so Bible translations, as good or bad as they are, if they don't lead to that purpose of knowing God deeper and, and understanding better who God is, then I think Jesus would say it's all for naught. That's that's my that's my little sermon. I love it. Well, um, Nije, one of the coolest things about you is there's a lot of resources out there. So you mentioned uh, the 15 New Testament Words of Life. That book is out right now. You have a book on patriarchy coming out. And then you also dropped in there your podcast with uh, Dr. AJ Swoboda. So anything else? What's the best way for people to follow you? Or did we hit everything? I think you hit everything, but if you're interested in seminary, <laughs> definitely check out Northern Seminary. My colleague Scott McKnight, Dr. Lynn Kohick, uh, we have a great, great team. 
follow what we're doing. We're always, you know, I do have YouTube videos. I have a YouTube channel. And Mike Bird and I, uh, Mike's an Australian New Testament scholar. We have these Bible chat fests, as he calls them, where we talk through different parts of scripture. Um, so if you haven't heard my voice enough, you're not sick of it yet, you might check that out. <laughs> awesome. Well, you can find us by going to whygodwhypodcast.com. Click the subscribe button. You'll be able to get this episode and many others. We thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.